And once you've been associated with something, especially something pejorative or negative, it's very tough to shake that. And there were plenty of people that were like, I love you. I will always love you. I still love you. I think that's great. Some people that were like, I used to love you. Now I hate you. Alison Roman is a chef, a writer, and a personality who has best-selling books, a hugely popular YouTube channel, and almost a CNN show. She dropped out of college to be a pastry chef, and she later shot to fame, partly because of Instagram, with recipes that became known by names like The Cookies and The Stew. She's written for Bon Appetit, BuzzFeed, The New York Times, and she has three books, Dining In, Nothing Fancy, and a new one about desserts called Sweet Enough. But she's also famous for being cancelled. She said some unkind things to a newsletter about Marie Kondo and Chrissy Teigen, and the internet freaked out. It was the summer of 2020, the peak of mania. We talk about what that was like, how she handled it, and how she's still dealing with the fallout three years on. We also talk about social media, not unrelated to the aforementioned problems, and we discuss what it's like to be an elder millennial on the internet. This is a fun one. And welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Alison Roman. Alison Roman, thanks very much for coming on The Active Voice. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Yeah, it's fun to be here. What's it feel like to be the viral recipes paragon? <laughs> um, well, I think that I feel like everything's moving so quickly that if you told anyone on TikTok who I am, they'd be like, how long ago was that? Like, what's a shallot pasta? Like, well, it, What is this Instagram thing? Yeah, it feels already so dated. And actually, earlier today, somebody had asked me about a handful of viral TikTok recipes and what I thought of them. And I hadn't heard of really any of them. None of them seem like actual recipes. They just seem like foods. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, I think it was just like a right place, right time thing. But I think the meaning of that word has really changed. The meaning of viral recipes. Yeah, I think that specifically the kind of food that I make and the kind of recipes that I write, I don't think qualify anymore as that, as the definition is now. Was Instagram there kind of serving as a rocket booster for, this is not a good term, but like the serious recipe building and inventing and writing that you were doing? Or was Instagram the ends in itself? I don't know. I think of Instagram as a tool, not like the main event and certainly not the place where I want my things to live. And I think most of the things, like I've never made a recipe for Instagram. I make a recipe for my book or for my newsletter or for a place that it can actually live on and serve a purpose. So I'm not out there making food for it. And so I use it as a tool for which to reach other people. It's a louder voice than me alone. But you must have figured out how to use Instagram to your advantage. very savvy about that? Or was that just kind of accidental? You were trying to make this, you were trying to help this recipe go far. You had this platform, you kind of knew how to use it. And it just so happened that it took off? Or were you calculated in how you were approaching it? No, I'm not actually not that calculated, period, about anything. I think that I'm flattered that people think that I am and smarter than I intend to be. But I think a lot of it is just instinct. And when you think about people now that are like either really big on YouTube or really big on TikTok or really big on Twitter, half of it is always right place, right time. Like they were an early adopter. They sort of figured out the app at the same time people started using it in heavy rotation. And I think that that's, I lived in a world, I worked at a food magazine before we had Instagram. I sort of began this journey of like working in food and making recipes and cooking way before social media was even a glimmer in our sweet little eyes. And so the idea that I sort of was like figuring out how to use it at the same time as everybody else, you're sort of just like throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. And again, I was really using it as a promotional tool. When I came out with my first book, I wanted a better way than the traditional publishing marketing materials to get the word out. And I think that with each new advent of something like social media, people are trying to pivot to be like, okay, there's eyeballs here, there's eyeballs here, there's eyeballs there. And it's like everywhere there's eyeballs, there's potential sale. How do we captivate that person? And so For me, the best and easiest way to do that just started being like, look at all the people cooking from my book, because that to me was the best endorsement. And from there, it became, look at all these people cooking the recipe from my column. Look at all these people cooking the recipe from my newsletter. And it sort of served as, to me, the best PR that you really can't pay for because it's organic, it's natural. And I think watching other people cook food and having it turn out well is very inspiring rather than feeling like, oh, well, it looks good because you made it or you're a professional or it's in a book or it was styled. 
but to just be like, here's an abundance of food that other people have made and have had success with, I think serves as the best incentive for someone else to be like, you know what, I'm going to cook that too. And I think that that is sort of a smaller, more grassroots viral origin story. Are you on TikTok? I'm not. Why not? I don't really have the time or desire to have another channel where I'm like making stuff for free. Making content for free. Yeah, and I think that like, of course, it could turn lucrative, but I think it doesn't come naturally to me in that like I've never been drawn to it. I don't have it on my phone. I don't watch it. People send them to me and I'll watch it. And I'm like, oh, that's funny. Mm. But I'm never like, and now the pull of TikTok has really got me and I must sink down into the couch for hours. It just hasn't clicked with me. And I think that if I were to do it, it would feel really forced and really fake. And I'd rather die. <laughs> well, that's yeah, it's an extreme yeah. alternative. What do you make <laughs> of the people who are becoming famous as food influencers or whatever term you want to use, food journalists, food makers, <laughs> recipe inventors through TikTok now, given your experience with Instagram back in the day? Well, I feel like you're baiting me, but all I'll say is good for them. Why would I be? How is this baiting? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I can't judge their work and I wouldn't judge their work. I think that I am a different type of person who makes different types of food. And I'd rather consider myself a writer than a creator. Why is that? I don't know. I just think that writing is something that makes me feel really good. It fills me up. It makes me feel like I'm doing the thing that I was like put here to do. And as much as I feel like when I'm cooking food, it feels like mm. I get the same sort of satisfaction. I feel like, okay, I feel like I'm good at this for me. Like I'm not the best writer. I'm not the best cook. But like when I do those things, I feel really fulfilled and I feel like I'm on the right path. And I think that I'm contributing something valuable mm. versus when I'm like making content. I'm like, what am I doing here? This is so useless and this is so empty and I feel sad. Mm. And so I sort of made the choice of like, okay, well, I'm going to choose activities that A, I can make a living <laughs> doing, B, that I'm good at, C, that I care about. And rather than trying to chase the attention of a very fickle landscape. Do you think of yourself as a food person? first or a writer person first? I guess I'm a food person first, only because I write about food. I don't think I'm never going to write a novel. I might write a book of essays or a book of nonfiction collection of something, but I'm never going to probably stray too far from food as an anchor only because that is how I've identified for so long. And it's still the thing that I care about the most. Because it's actually pretty rare. It's rare to be someone like you. That's so nice. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Thanks. But gifted on these two levels. I was actually, I was thinking about this. So many millions of people want to be food influencers or known for their cooking or known for their recipes or known for their grace in the kitchen or something. Mm -hmm. And so many people separately want to be known for their writing and great writers and they dream of writing the novel or they dream of writing for the New York or New York Times, whatever, having books. And... It is rare when you think about it that there's someone who's gifted enough at both that they can be respected and loved for both. And it's that combination, I think, with you that makes you stand out above all others. That's so nice. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So I wonder, though, do you think that people are receiving you in that way? Do you think they're paying attention to you as a writer in that way? Do they realize that half the reason, at least, they're connecting with you is because you're such a gifted communicator? Or do they see you as like, the cookies person, the stew person. Yeah, I think it's both. And I think that once I started doing, when I was at Bon Appetit, I didn't really write that much. It was like, I would write head notes, but no one really knew where they came from. Or I would write sidebars, but they were like 75 words. There wasn't a ton of opportunity for the sort of personal journalism that I sort of prefer. And I tried my hand at like doing other styles of journalism and I was really bad at it. What did you try? Oh, just like writing a story about a thing or a person or an event or a place. I just found myself, I don't know, it didn't come naturally to me. And I, I didn't find myself being very good at it. And I was sort of like, okay, well, maybe I'm not a journalist and I'm okay with that. But I did go through a phase in my career where I felt pressure to be a great cook, a great journalist, a great writer, a great this, a great personality, a great 20 other things. And once I sort of let go of the idea that I didn't actually have to be all that and I didn't have to do all that. I could start writing the way that I wanted to, even if 10 people wrote it. I sort of was like, well, this is a really low barrier to entry because I have achieved, to me, a wonderful amount of success for my recipes. Meaning anything on top of that feels like a gift. It feels like a welcome addition to my repertoire and what people 
know, like me, respect me for. And so when I was at the New York Times, I got a column and I was able to write five to 700 words every other week. And that was really great. And I tried to make them as personal as possible, but even still you're in the service journalism category. And the goal of those five to 700 words is to convince a reader to cook this thing, right? It's not to like tell you a story about my grandma. You can sneak that in and it can be a part of something. You can thread the needle, but all said and done, like you're really focused on like why you should cook this tonight. And my books are similar where like you have a head note and it's like you have the space and sure an anecdote or like a story is funny and fun and like feeds my ego. But at the end of the day, you really want the reader to have success and a desire to cook this thing or bake this thing. And so when I started my newsletter, I really sort of plugged back into like, what is a newsletter for me? Like I had a column, I've written books, like I've done magazines, but I'm not writing for anyone else. I'm only writing for me. And you start with no subscribers and you sort of just start writing for yourself and hope that people enjoy it or connect to it. And I was very, very surprised at how many people did. But what was funny is people are like, wow, I didn't know you could write. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I've been... Publishing a column. Yeah, I've been publishing a column for two years in the paper of record. And I think that most people just read the recipe because, again, the column was, it's available online, but it's not attached to the recipe. So if you Google shallot pasta, mm. you're only getting the recipe. And the call, you know, 700 words that I wrote alongside of it to give you the context and the story and the heartfelt blah, blah, blah. No one reads that. So with my newsletter, I'm able to like incorporate, they live together. And so I think it sort of forces people. It's like the meme of like the girl making the other girl drink milk. I don't know who they are. Are they so famous? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I I need Linda Um, (laughs) back on Twitter recently. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so I think that, yeah, long story short, it feels really good to be able to fully express myself both through recipe writing and food and just writing to write recipes for the food that I want to cook and write the way that feels natural and fulfilling to me that I think has been the truest expression of myself. It made my last book that I just wrote, it made that book so much better, having had the exercise to like... The book that's about to come out? Yeah, it comes out March 28th. Yeah, which is very close to the date this publishes. Yes. Yeah. No mistake. Uh, Well, (laughs) kind of a mistake. You're in town, so it worked out. The stars aligned. No, it's all calculated. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that to me, that would be the greatest gift to like at the end of my career, when I'm dead and gone, for people to remember me for both things. But yeah, there's definitely the people that are like, oh, the cookie lady, which is a great title. It's Very a way, happy it's with that. Definitely a way in, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you could be known as worse things than the cookie lady. Yeah. The cookie monster had a good brand. He was well. Yeah, yeah. we still remember him. We talk yeah. about him all the time. Yeah, exactly. But I think you can transcend the cookie monster with good newsletter writing. Let's hope so. Yeah, I think you're on a good track. Why was it surprising, though? Did you know that people weren't reading the columns? Or is there something qualitatively different about the response you would get through the newsletter that gave you a stronger feeling of like people really care? Well, I think it was surprising because I was publishing all these words and I just assumed people read them, but I was like, oh, I guess not. But I think it was surprising also because there's a direct line of communication where people can respond directly to your email and say, this really moved me or this da 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 or people can leave a comment. And there's like a more fluid relationship between you and the person who's consuming the words that you write rather than like opening up a paper or magazine and sort of, you know, different voices sort of blend together and they fit all under this umbrella of a brand or a paper or magazine or whatever. And that becomes like your association with them. And that was sort of also why I left Bon Appetit when I did, because I was like, I don't want to be Allison from Bon Appetit forever. And I think having now made all my own sort of quote unquote, like avenues for people to find me, be it video or newsletter, books, whatever. I feel like people go there for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the trade-off is that there's significantly fewer eyeballs. Like, of course, I don't have the readership of the New York Times, but everyone who's there really wants to be there. And that feels really great. It's hard to do what you're doing. You have to be a writer. You have to consistently write. You also make an amazing YouTube show. You have to keep up appearances, like literally keep up appearances, like yourself (laughs) and your kitchen, like the aesthetics of your books. Mm -hmm. Do you find that energy giving or energy taking all that? I think both. It doesn't matter how much you love something. If you do it enough or if it takes enough hours, you're going to be fatigued by it in some form or another. But because that's been my whole life, I feel like I've always been tired, (laughs) but I've never regretted being tired or feeling tired. Like I really love the work that I do and wouldn't trade it 
for an easier or, or different alternative. But yeah, I think both in the evolution of what kind of content do I want to create? How do I differentiate myself? What's the next thing? How am I going to evolve beyond this? I don't like feeling stagnant. I don't like feeling complacent. So I think that that's to me the most difficult part of what I do is just being like, okay, we've been doing this style for like a year now. Like, when are we going to evolve? Whereas like, it'd probably be a lot easier for me to just say like, oh, this works. Let's just keep doing it. And I think that beyond that, it is by design that I have a newsletter and I write cookbooks and I have a YouTube channel and I da 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 because it really feeds my brain and keeps me stimulated. And like everything that I learn from each of those things informs what I do for the other. And hopefully one day soon, they'll all feel a little bit more cohesive. But I kind of like that there's people that subscribe to my YouTube channel have no idea I have a newsletter. Never read a single word. And there's a lot of people that subscribe to my newsletter that have no interest in watching me cook on YouTube. Do you feel like you're an internet writer? What's an internet writer? I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, once upon a time, there used to be such a thing as like the online journalists. Like a blogger? Well, a lot of your career seems to have been built on the superpowers of the internet. I think it's because I'm 37. I think if you look at the trajectory of the internet, I missed the like blog house era. I was too young and I sort of missed the TikTok era. And I'm like weirdly in between where like I've worked at old journalism, but also have the benefit of being quasi early to like, quote unquote, new journalism. Mm. So I'm not like wildly popular in either, but I'm comfortable. (laughs) Mm. But yeah, I definitely wouldn't consider myself an internet writer. I'm definitely not as, I think most people are like, oh, I love your cookbooks. They're not like, I love your Twitter. Yeah, I also spend as little time on Twitter now as I can. Yeah, why? I mean, the same reason that anyone would say that. Because it's the worst fucking site on the internet. (laughs) There's no nuance. Even if you say something like funny or lighthearted, people will like extrapolate something. And again, like if I can't really just be myself then I don't really want to be at all. And so Mm. I think that... But you can do that on Instagram? I mean, I don't really use Instagram that much either anymore. I use it for work. What's your relationship with Instagram at the moment? It's fraught. It's fine. I think that like, I'm sort of looking at my phone being like, I'm going to have to get to know you again soon because I'm gearing up to do book tour and book promotion. And it's a really useful tool. And you can connect with a lot of people that way. And people find out their information that way. Like no one's going to my website and I don't blame them. It's much easier. I do furniture shopping on Instagram. Mm. Like that's what I use it for. It's basically a mall for me now. I just bought a lip gloss on Instagram. Very happy with my purchase. (laughs) Bought some chairs the other day. Is everyone doing that on Instagram? Is that how people use Instagram now? Oh, yeah. It's good. Yeah. I met my boyfriend on Instagram. How did that happen? He messaged me. Yeah, what did he Slid say? Slid into the DMs. Different podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he'll kill me. No, it was nothing weird. Do you just read DMs from random people? I was on vacation alone. He got you in a weak moment. I was in like a self-indulgent, you know, I was like alone in Italy, like spending a lot of time on my phone. <laughs> so Italy's yeah, a beautiful right place, place to right read time. Instagram DMs. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that, again, Instagram is a great tool. And if you can sort of like not spend too much time on it and like get in and get out, use it for what you need it for. It's a great tool for getting information to a large so, number of so people. So what's the fraught part then? The pressure to use it more, the pressure to be different on it, looking at things that are perfectly styled, like bodies, apartments, vacations, relationships, like everything is just like, this is our life. And you're like, is that really your life? Is there something wrong with me? It's the same. I feel like we've been having this conversation for years mm-hmm. as like a culture at large and no one has really cracked the code but I think it's pretty simple and it's just like oh that makes you feel bad Mm -hmm. (laughs) so don't do it like don't pick up your phone it it feels bad so I've sort of like replaced my endless Instagram scrolling which like results in spiraling and comparison and Mm -hmm. feeling of just it's like empty also I'm Mm -hmm. like I don't know half these people yeah I did a lot of muting. I did a lot of unfollowing. Mm-hmm. And now it's like cats with babies. I found as a really... Cats calm. that have babies? No. Well, cats that have babies and also cats with babies. Oh. Great content. Just, that Instagram has just been feeding me. I didn't even intend to That kind of sounds good. It. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm warming up to this Instagram. Yeah. Thing. Clothes, furniture. Yeah. Cats and babies. Dogs getting haircuts. You know, I try to keep <laughs> it light. If I want to catch up with people and find out what they're up to, if I really care about them, I'm going to call them or I'm going to text them. Do you think there might be an end to this particular era that Instagram has? Oh dear defined? God, I hope so. <laughs> you know, I think about that a lot because never mind. I remember it. Yeah. I thought it was going to be huge when it came out. Well, and actually it actually did it, kind of pop up. It is then, huge. It's TikTok. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I would say no. It will not be an end to this I don't Instagram think so. Defined. I think Instagram is just like here, but people age out of it in the same way that they're like, Facebook is here to stay. And it is, but it's different now. And we don't use it the same way we did. And generationally, I think we're all in charge 
from generation to generation. We're in charge of what stays and what goes. And that's why I think that Instagram was like, oh, we got to, I mean, I'm talking, I don't know anything about the tech world. I don't know anything about why anyone does anything. This is just vague speculation. But it's like, oh, we got to like compete with TikTok because the young people are using TikTok. They're not using they Instagram definitely are in doing the same that. way that my dad uses Facebook. I don't use Facebook. Mm-hmm. So it's with each passing generation, like things age out. And will Facebook ever go away? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it just morphs. Mm-hmm. I think it's like, oh, I use Facebook for Facebook Marketplace and that's it. This is a delicate question about age that I want to make sure I phrase as sensitively no, that's as possible. Okay. But how does it feel to be like of the age now where you're not on the next hot platform and you're not in that thing and you're like sitting at it from a place of greater wisdom and maturity, getting to look at it from the outside? It feels amazing. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It feels great. I feel like once you realize you don't have to do all that stuff, and you're like, oh, I don't care. But mm. I can say that because I have achieved succeeded. success mm-hmm. in certain ways. And so it's like only once you, and that's personally defined, you know, no one can define that for you, what quote success means or what is enough. And I'm not saying it's enough now, but I'm saying that I've realized there's too much out of your control for you to get wrapped up in what you think of as important as visual success. And at my most quote unquote popular, I was making the least money. And when I was feeling like, oh, if I only had this many Instagram followers, I would be da-da-da. Or if I only had this many, if I had this many. So you were like that? You were in this sort of Oh, yeah. When I was young, absolutely. And now I'm like, I only know the number because you just asked me and I recently looked. But Mm. it's not something that I obsess over. It's not something I think about. It doesn't drive my actions because I realized none of that stuff made a difference in how I felt. And it didn't make my work better. Mm. What does it feel like to be at the peak of popularity on social media, but making not that much money? I think it just sort of, went to show you, it's just, it's perception versus reality. People are like, oh, you must, you're doing so well. And it's like, I'm doing so well because I'm everywhere, but I'm not doing well financially because none of that makes you any money. And I wonder when people on TikTok will start talking more about that and sort of saying, what is all this for? Oh, I have like 2.5 million followers. And maybe you're getting like brand deals and maybe that's converting itself in a meaningful way. But I'm sure for a lot of people, there's going to come a time where they're like, wait, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. And I think that you sort of realize, who am I working for? And that's kind of why I'm like, well, I'm not working for Instagram because they don't pay me. Right. That's not how I make my money. At what point did you start making money? I don't even know what started making money means. I sort of just... At what point did you stop worrying about money, about how much you were making? Probably like 2019, I would say, which is, well, yeah, 2019, I had sort of figured out a way to like because I had sold those two books together. I sold Dining In and Nothing Fancy as a pair. Mm. And so once I started writing Nothing Fancy, because the way the advances rolled in, I was then getting paid for that book, uh, yeah. mm. which then I was like, okay, now I got like a sizable check enough to like live off this. Yeah. And like that felt meaningful. Yeah. How did it change your career and how you felt about your career? It didn't really, because I sort of lived the same way that I did when I didn't have any money. Mm. I spent a little more on rent, but (laughs) because I'm an idiot. No, (laughs) I think that like for the most part, my my lifestyle hasn't really changed and my goals or ambitions, nothing changed because I became more financially comfortable. But I think that's what happens when you live your life without money for a very long time, which I did. And I was like overdrafting my account every week. I was living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. It was very brutal for a long time. And so even when that wasn't an issue, I think if you ever have that, as an experience in your life that never really quite goes away. Mm -hmm. You're sort of always still like, how much money do I have? Like, is it enough? Mm -hmm. Like, honestly, the biggest change is that I started saving money. Mm -hmm. I like got a financial advisor and I started putting money away for like retirement accounts because I don't work for a company. So I wasn't going to have like a 401k. And I was like, you know what? The best thing I could do for myself is live on the same salary as I did in 2019 Mm -hmm. and put everything else into a retirement fund. That's smart. Or like, whatever. Next, you should write a book about personal finance yeah. <laughs> for journalists. <laughs> That's my tip is save your money, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Live no, the no. same, save your money. I don't know if anyone's actually said that one before. 2019, though, you were already well-known. A lot of people knew the name Alison Roman. And people must have assumed. I know you did. Because yeah, you were emailing I was, me. I was jumping into your DMs. <laughs> yeah, waited until you were in Italy, apparently. Yeah, so you were huge already. Or at least like a very large cult following. Yeah. So everyone must have assumed that you were loaded by that point. Yeah, I think that that's what happens. I think that you're like, oh, I see this person everywhere. They're rich. It's like, what? No. (laughs) I assume there must have been a part of that that felt weird. 
you're making a difference in people's lives, millions of people's lives mm -hmm. by bringing these recipes into their lives, by sort of inspiring them to think differently about cooking, by just sort of adding a little pinch of joy into their day. <laughs> and you're being compensated like a lowly paid writer, like someone who's working at a magazine or something. I'm assuming. Yeah, but I didn't really think of it that way, honestly. It didn't really bother me until I feel like people were talking about me like I was somehow financially blessed. Yeah. Again, like I was comfortable. I paid rent. Mm -hmm. I could like go to dinner. I had the things that I cared about. It wasn't like I didn't have the ambition. To, and when I was working at Bon Appetit, I left making $85,000 a year. That was the most I ever made there mm -hmm. at like the highest level that living, I could be. Living in New York. Yeah. And that was the highest I could be paid. That was the highest position I could hold. And so it was like time for me to leave and see it. But like, even then I was like, when I got that raise from 75,000, I was like, wow, 85,000, that's amazing. Right. And granted, I was like 30. Yeah. And it did feel like a lot. And mm -hmm. this was six, seven years ago. So it was a lot. And I just think that money is really subjective and it's really, it depends on how much you have or don't have. But before that, I was making $40,000 at a bakery. It was only like small increments of change that I was like more and more comfortable. So it wasn't like, I was used to a standard of living that I didn't have and I was begrudging of it. It was more just an interesting thought of like, wow, you can be... Because I sort of thought that the more popularity you had, the more money you would have. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so just to like to live it firsthand and be like, oh, they're actually not related at all. And that sort of really began my sort of fraught relationship with social media. I'm just like, how much am I giving to this thing? Yeah. And how much am I getting back? Yeah. And people are like, oh, we'd love to have you for this thing, but we don't have a budget. Yeah. And you're like, okay. And you sort of just say yes to everything. And you're like, wow, you are everywhere. And you're like, yeah, but I didn't make a dime from any of this. Yeah. And I didn't have like a team of people advocating for me or helping me figure that out because I was just sort of happy to be there. Yeah. I was like, yeah, sounds great. Yeah. I assume you don't regret doing that now. No, no, no. Of course not. No, I think I just learned a lot. I think now I say no more. And as a result, I'm fewer places. And I'm okay with that. I think that I'm also at peace with that. Like, I don't feel the need to be everywhere. Yeah. Well, you've seen the highs and lows of being everywhere. For sure. And also just became like a saturation thing. And you see it. I mean, yeah. Nobody wants to see everybody everywhere. What was it like getting the New York Times column? Was it something you aspired to for a long time? Yeah, I think it was my dream. It was the thing that I wanted more than anything at that time because it was the final frontier in terms of public writing there wasn't another magazine, there wasn't another newspaper, there wasn't another publication that was publishing regularly that I really wanted to be a part of that had as big of a readership that sort of, to me, getting that gig really, it made me feel really validated beyond being like a pastry cook. And I think that I had a big complex about myself because I dropped out of college, started cooking in restaurants. And when I was like 19, I was working in restaurants in LA and my best friends were at college. They were at UCLA. They were at UCSB. And I would go and visit them. And all their friends would be like, where do you go to school? And I'd be like, oh, I don't go to school. And they're like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a pastry chef. And to me, that was about the coolest thing you could be. I was just like, this is such an awesome career. It's really special. Like, you don't, you guys don't understand. And I could feel like people were like, oh, it was almost like they felt bad for me. Like, it was like I couldn't get into college. So I started working at a restaurant <laughs> when that just wasn't the case. It was like, to me, such a cerebral experience. And me and my coworkers, we were always reading books and talking about food in this really like beautiful, artistic, poetic way. And it felt like the best use of our brains because we were being creative, we were being physical, we were being agile, we were being, it was just like working service in a restaurant is like an unparalleled mental and physical exercise. And everyone I worked with was so smart. And so it wouldn't occur to me mm. that anyone would be like, oh, you work at a restaurant? Like, could you not get into college? Mm. I remember one time somebody asked me that. They're like, oh, did you not get into school? <laughs> I was like, no, I did get into school. I chose to leave. But they stuck with you. Right. And so I think then when I interviewed for the job at Bon Appetit, I think I've said this publicly before, but I think I definitely lied about going to school. And I was like, oh, I went to school, which I did. Mm -hmm. I just dropped out. Mm -hmm. how, long, how long were you at school for? Uh, two years. Oh, yeah. It was long enough. More than enough. Yeah. What, what, don't worry, what you, I kept no, reading. Nothing happens in the third year. <laughs> that's anyway. what, I'm, that's yeah. what I've heard. Or fourth year. Yeah. I don't know how long college well, is. Well, third days. or fourth year. Yeah. It's four. It's four. Yeah. <laughs> in New Zealand, it's three. Oh, okay. Yeah, but we're more simple people. It's a wild country, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I got the job there and remember being like, oh my God, I work in a magazine where people write and there's words. And felt like when I got that job, it was like extremely validating. It's like, oh, I am more than a pastry cook. And I work at a magazine. I work at Condé Nast. And it felt like a real 
upgrade for me. And I felt so proud of myself and of just like kind of pivoting and parlaying my experience in restaurants and like love of doing what I did there into something different. Like I could spin that. And for the first few years, I didn't write anything. They wouldn't assign me anything. Even though you wanted to? Yeah, I think, I mean, I was in the test kitchen. So it was sort of like, oh, you worked in the test kitchen. You don't write. You develop recipes. You cook recipes. Mm. And I sort of started expressing interest in doing more writing. And I remember like the website, they had a website, (laughs) bonapetit.com. And they were treated as like such a second class. It was so interesting. It was just like, oh. The test kitchen people were second class No, well, yeah, sort of. But the website people, almost even more so, where it was like, oh, it's just for the website. Yeah. Because like no one reads that. So they would let me write for the internet. (laughs) They would like, oh, well, you could like write for bonapetit.com. And I'm like, okay. So I started pitching the web editors and like trying to do more work there. And it wasn't good at all. It was objectively bad. I hadn't like found my voice. I was trying to write like someone else. I didn't even know what my voice was, but I knew I liked it. I liked the exercise. I liked the feeling. And along the way, I had some really wonderful editors who asked me some like really great questions of like, how would you write this if you were just writing to me, you know, an email? Or I remember one of my editors, I was like talking about like a story, that idea that I had. And she was like, well, who cares? I was like, wow. And she's like, no, I just mean like, who cares? If you're writing this, like, who out there will care about this? Like, it wasn't like dismissive. It was like... Who is the person who cares enough about Yeah, this? and I ask myself that a lot when I'm writing now. Who cares? Mm-hmm. But yeah, anyway, so long story long, <laughs> I still felt like because I was in the quote-unquote test kitchen, I was never really considered a real editor. I did get some writing assignments. It just became a different working environment. And it was like, you were still just treated as the cook. You were like the test kitchen person. And I wasn't considered like a writer or like a person that could do anything beyond writing recipes at least like at large. I think a lot of people saw potential and were like, oh, you're actually great at this or you could be great at this. Mm. But I wanted more than that. And so when I was offered a column after freelancing for a few years at the Times, was just so emotional and so blown away. Mm. And this is after I had written a, a book. book. Yeah. Right. So like I, a smash hit book. Yeah. And I think they were like, oh, she can like string together a sentence and editors were great. So it was like nothing was going to go horribly wrong. But I think that that to me was the most validating thing because people, very intellectual people, respect the New York Times. And yeah. it made me feel respected by proxy as something more than a cook. Yeah. Dining in, by the way, I see that book all the fucking time because it's on our shelf very visibly. At oh, home. good. Yeah, my wife is a, a very large Alison Roman fan. Oh, thank you. My firstborn feels so long ago. It came first out in 2017. Book, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was before the internet That's, existed. I, I know. It's like a yeah. thousand years ago. Yeah. Oy. So, Actually, did the viral recipes thing follow the book or precede the book? No, they must, must have followed. It started with the book. It started with the cookies from the book. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. It, was, it was just, a, well, in a way, it's like a genius marketing campaign for the book. Yeah, right. it was. And what did your family think when you got the New York Times job? Were they ever telling you? That, I mean. Did they care? They cared. As, yeah. You I'd, gave me a face as if, like, your family I mean, didn't even think about it. No, I think they were proud of me. I think that they're constantly shocked, surprised, and impressed with my ability to pivot. (laughs) (laughs) And with each decision that I make that they think might be the wrong one, I end up somehow figuring it out. And I think that when I said I'm leaving college to go cook at a restaurant, they were like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. And it was terrifying. When I said I'm moving to San Francisco, they were like, what? Why? You don't know anyone there. You don't have a job. And Mm -hmm. I figured it out. And I was like, I'm moving to New York. And they're like, you don't have any money. You don't know anyone. You don't have a job. And I was like, I'll figure it out. And I did. And I'm going to work at a magazine. They're like, what? You don't know how to do that. You know, like, it's sort of like everything that I've done, they get less and less surprised, but like more and more impressed maybe. But it's sort of like, now they're like, oh, she'll always figure it out. And I'm, it's like, like lost its luster. <laughs> well, <laughs> the shock value has disappeared. It's kind of unfair for you to stop getting credit for being a good pivoter. I know. Thank you. So I said before that one of the things that makes you special and different and successful is that you're not only a good cook, you're a great writer. Thank you. I'll just keep saying it. I (laughs) I love it. And the other thing, I was wondering if another element in there that contributes to your success is your ability to reinvent, your ability to pivot. Yeah, I hope so. I think that I have a real desire to be different. And sometimes I don't succeed at that. But I think just attempting, I don't succeed at that in that sometimes I do things that I think are different that have actually been done. Or sometimes I do something different that isn't successful. But I think that just the desire to try People are always like, who else? And like, what food creators are you? And I'm like, oh my God, food creator as a phrase, like makes me want to like 
wither inside. Yeah. You I do create tough. food. I know, but that's like saying that I'm a word maker, a sentence maker. <laughs> yeah, like a 100%. food creator. I'm like, yeah. what? No. I'm, yeah, yeah, it's so, it doesn't feel good in the mouth. I think that my desire to be different or to create different things and to not be complacent is sort of a key for anybody that wants longevity. And I think that that's sort of, when you asked me before, like, what's it feel like? You basically were like, what's it like to be an old millennial? Um, I'm like, <laughs> I well. It, I said it much more yeah. tactfully than that. Yeah, no, I know. It was graceful. Yeah. No, but I'm, you know, it feels good because I no longer feel like I have to be the best in the moment. I want to be the best over time, if that yeah. makes sense. And, and it doesn't have to be the best. I'm using that as Just like good. a very Just simple. Good, is good enough. Yeah, I want to be great over time. Yeah. I don't want to be the best for a minute. Yeah, which is the opposite of what social media encourages. Exactly. And I think that that's sort of what also changed my relationship with it. And once I had that revelation, I was like, I don't actually need to be on TikTok. I don't need to be here. I want to make things that feel lasting. I want to have a larger impact. I want to have a very large, long arc. And that will be full of like nooks and crannies and dips and divots. And I don't think that anyone can maintain 100% forever. And as soon as I realized that, I became a lot more comfortable with mistakes or sort of ebbs and flows. And I'm sure much to your chagrin why I don't write a newsletter for a month. Um, (laughs) Because it's like, if I don't have anything to say, I'm not going to just put stuff out there to like fill the space. I don't think that that benefits anyone. And I don't think that makes my work better or stronger. And I would like to be considered a person over time as like, someone who had an impact on the culture of food and the way people cook at home and any number of other wonderful things anyone wants to say, I'll take it. But rather than like the one moment that, you know, it's like a person with music. It's like you can write like an amazing single and you can hear it everywhere. It can be the song of the summer. But in five years, you're like, who's that person who sang that song? Versus like a person who has made just like a wonderful collection of albums with no skips that like maybe there's no single but you're just like damn like as a whole these albums are incredible I respect them I love listening to them and as an artist I adore them and I think that that relationship is so much different than like the intensity of like a one off situation even if it feels more powerful in the moment do books scratch that itch for you they do actually they do because they feel permanent you're a book creator yeah I'm a book creator (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think because they're a permanent thing And for better or for worse, like I look at dining in and I'm like, oh my God, I feel so dated. Even though I really strived at the time to create something that felt timeless. And I think that it still does. And there's still like a lot of great recipes in there that I would really stand behind. And I think are my version of a modern classic in my own eyes. What's dated about? Oh, I don't know. I'm just, there's like certain... Chickpeas are so 2017. No, 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 no. I think that for me, it was my first book. I like learned a lot in the process and the style of everything that we did. Just like I'm sure I'll feel that way about all my books in 10 years. And I think that for me, my goal is to always make something that feels timeless. It feels classic. It feels like it could be born at any time. And that is the biggest compliment is when people buy dining in today and they're like, oh my God, I love it. I've been cooking through it. It's amazing. So many hits. Because it's not like, it didn't age out. Mm -hmm. And that was published five years ago. Six years ago? What year are we in? Uh, No one's really sure. Doesn't matter. Yeah. By the time this comes out, it'll be eight years ago. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so that feels really good. But I more mean dated, like, for me, just like aesthetically, or like, I would never make that cover today. That's just like not where I am. Why not? Oh, I don't know. It's just not me. Because you already made it. Yeah, I, I made it then. And it felt right then. It felt like books are sort of, for me, like an equal part, like timeless classic, and also extreme of the moment time capsule. They're equal parts. And you say things in the book that maybe you wouldn't say today. You make recipes that maybe you wouldn't make today. You style it in a way that maybe feels like not as modern. There's just like a lot of things. And I think that that's beautiful too, because it also can show the evolution of a person, of trends, of a moment, of a culture. And imagine if I wrote a book in 2017 and I kept writing the same book for eight years. It's like, wow, nothing changed. It's still timeless. It's like, well, no, you're just not evolving. So I think that the evolution of a person. And and also like I was 30 when I wrote that. I'm 37 now. And like that feels like pretty significant. And a lot happens in those years. And so I think... You've, you've had a quiet seven years. <laughs> oh yeah, nothing, nothing <laughs> happened. I think that there's a lot of beauty in being able to like look at a younger version of yourself and how sure I was of so many things when I wrote that book and how not sure of so many things I am now. 
And I'm sure I'll feel the same way in another seven years. I hope I do. Yeah. Getting older is realizing how much you don't know. Oh, yeah. Yes. A thousand percent. So what's different about this new book, the one that's coming out March 28th? March 28th. Can you say the title that I've temporarily (laughs) forgotten? (laughs) No, it's called Sweet Enough. Sweet Enough, yeah. And I'm sort of pitching it as like a dessert book for people who don't do desserts. Because while I was a professional pastry chef, I really sort of became like a real advocate for the home cook because I am one now. I don't work in a restaurant. And so I also just wanted to make like a dessert book that felt as approachable as my savory recipes. So if you're like, I'm not really a dessert person, I'm like, well, me neither. But trust me, this cake is really great and you can make it. Or this is a really wonderful dessert to have in your repertoire. Or just like cut open some fruit and drizzle it with honey and put some ice cream on it. You'll have a blast. There's a lot of ways to look at dessert. And I think that this book to me is a very personal and specific description of dessert. There's a lot of things that aren't in the book that you might expect to be in a dessert book because they're not like a recipe that I personally care about or feel like I need to contribute to the chorus of. Like there's no brownie recipe. There's no chocolate chip cookie recipe. Like I'm just like, I don't need to do that. They exist. People have done it. It's great. I don't need to contribute. And yeah, to me, there's a lot more writing. The design is so good. It's so fun. The photography is beautiful. What role do you get to have in pushing on the design? A big one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very involved. Are you like, put that line there, make a dot up there? Well, I worked with a very, very talented designer. His name is Britt Cobb, and he is... Do these designers get enough credit for their work on these books? I don't think so. It's a lot of work. It's also a labor of love. It's not... I mean, all books are. No, Do they get a commission on the book? No. Oh, well. So you pay them a lump sum, and you make this look beautiful, and then they... Yeah. Get forgotten. and I hope he doesn't. I mean, he's, he's doing fine. But I mean, no one does a book for money. Not the writer, not the editor, not the photographer, not the anyone. It's just like, it's not that lucrative to yeah. do these big things. Like, I think it's different when you can like amass enough, you know, whatever to like turn out like novels in a meaningful way where it's just like you and your editor and the whatever. And it's like, but a cookbook requires so many other like moving parts because mm. of the style of book that it is. What's your favorite part of book creating? Is it this moment when you've got this thing to tell the world about? Is it I do like this part. I really do. And I think the last three years have been interesting. I haven't had like one thing to talk about. It's sort of just been like talking about myself nebulously is like, I have a newsletter, I have YouTube, but like no one interviews you when you get a YouTube channel. (laughs) They're not like, congratulations, because like everybody has one. Yeah, maybe. For home movies especially, it is a work of art. Thank you. It is a work of art. The the compliments are flowing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but they should write about that. It's a good show. Thank you. But a book is like, you do like the whole thing. And it is nice to reflect on it and like see how it is different. And I think especially now that I have two other books to compare it to. And there was three years between the second one and the third one. And it feels nice to be able to talk about it as like a work that you've produced rather than like, no one's like, well, yeah, should I post this picture of shrimp cocktail? And I thought it was really special because like, you know, it's shrimp and a thing and there was a cocktail. Like, no one cares. It's a one thing. It's like ephemeral. It's more like snapshotty and a book feels more like... I mean, it takes so much time to make, literally before it, and also just like the physical making of the book takes like 100 years. Yeah. It's so, amazing yeah. you've done three because that's 300 years total. Yeah. I also really love writing and I also hate writing. I think most writers feel that way. Yeah. Where you're like, writing's hard and I hate it. And you're like, but I would die if I didn't do it. And it feels so good to put something, you know, on your computer. <laughs> I'm like acting like I'm like sitting with a typewriter <laughs> and feel like, you've like exercised something. You're like, wow, I've just said something that I didn't know that I needed to say or phrase something in such a way that I've never quite articulated before. And I'm talking like I'm making like, you know, these revelations I'm writing about like, you know, butter and sugar together in a recipe. But like, it just feels to me like there's no like greater sense of accomplishment at the end of the day or whenever it is that you write. But like, if you would ask me when I was in the middle of writing this, I'd be like, I hate this part Mm because it's so hard. It's like you sit there, you look at your computer, you get up, you make a pot of beans, you come back to your computer, Mm. you get up, you look for furniture online, you (laughs) get back to your Google Doc, you call someone, you have a Zoom meeting, you get back to the Google Doc, you put a chicken in the oven. Like, I'll think of a million things to do that Mm. aren't writing. Yeah. Do you have a certain time of day when you are most productive writing-wise? The second half, unfortunately. I love to wake up early and like pretend like I'm going to get a start on the day, but mm-hmm. only around like three or four do I, am I like, oh, now I can start writing. And it just pours out of you? Sometimes. Yeah. And if it doesn't, I try to stop and then move on to something else. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of things, you know, it's like if you push something to the side, that thing is the last thing you write. Like I don't come back to it tomorrow. Like right. it's not going to be better tomorrow, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And those are the things that like keep me up at night where I'm like, oh, I have to write this essay on why making a double crust pie is like not worth it. Because in my head, in my heart, like I'm like, I know the answer, but like, how do I make this good to read? And you just end up thinking about it all night and like waking up and you think about it and you're like, you know, going for your little silly walk and you're like thinking about it. And only when you're like, okay, I feel like I have something to say. Mm. It's so hard for me to write if I don't have an opinion on something. Mm. I'm basically an opinion writer. (laughs) Are you wary about going out to promote this book, given that it inevitably means everyone's going to want to talk about cancellation and recovery from that and that painful time? definitely. I think that my sort of reaction to it will vary depending on like how they ask and like in what way. And it feels like very elephant in the room. So I understand why people want to, but I also don't feel like it's the most interesting thing about me. I think that in 10 years, it could be interesting as like a cultural phenomenon to like be so closely associated with or have to be a part of. But like, I think in my opinion, it doesn't define me and I don't, you know, feel like if that becomes the focus, then like all my other work sort of is in vain. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like really good at this thing. And like, that's really should be the focus. And like, this is actually sort of feels like clickbaity or like gossipy. It's juicy. It's, Everyone's yeah. going to go at it. Right. And like, no one wants to like, I just feel like it's too sticky for people to like really ask with an open heart. I think most people are asking because they want to like you to say something that's going to like go viral. Yeah. Be interesting. And I save that stuff for my therapist and my closest friends. And I think that I am weary of it, of just like being out there again. But I also trust myself. I know myself. I like myself. And I'm not like that concerned. I don't like, there's no one here with me. It's not like, okay, you better not say anything. Like I'm pretty- you've got no handlers. (laughs) I'm pretty confident and self-assured that I'm able to simultaneously be vulnerable, open, honest, and not say something fucking stupid. (laughs) Do you worry about what you say now? Do you worry more about what you say? I wouldn't say? say worry is the right word. I think being cognizant of is definitely. Mm-hmm. And even if that specific thing that happened to me hadn't happened, I still would be now because it's happened to so many other people. Right. That yeah. if you are a person right now in the year of our Lord, 2023, speaking publicly on any platform, yeah. you just have just to. Just make be. sure you don't say anything interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the newsletter is for. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's very juicy. Like and subscribe. <laughs> I feel like everybody sort of collectively became a lot more cognizant of the things that they say and how they say Cognizant them. or scared? Mm, it depends on who you ask. I think that I personally am not scared because I don't have anything to be scared of. Again, I think it's like being afraid of somebody finding something out about you, but I don't have anything to hide. So I'm like, no, I'm very secure. And the people around me that know me and love me are wonderful people as well. And like, they know me and... I know myself and it feels like I don't think there's anything wrong with like adjusting your words to be more generally aware of different types of people and experiences, et cetera. And I don't consider that being scared. I think that just like, and a lot of people are going to feel differently about that. And I think that people are like, no, you should be able to say whatever the fuck you want whenever you, it's like, well, like if anyone learned anything from my experience, it's like, no, you actually can't just say whatever the fuck you want because it's not nice. (laughs) <laughs> but they could be more understanding in both directions. Like it could be understanding on the reader's part. Oh, as well, absolutely. But part. I don't think that you can, I think with as many eyeballs and ears and et cetera, as there are, like the rooms just get bigger and bigger every day. And like, if, you know, five people think you're wonderful and one person thinks you suck when you're in a room this big, that's fine. But when it's a room 20 times the size and the numbers become proportionate, you're like, well, I don't want this many people. I'm not going to, I'm not good at numbers, but like you do adjust. And you I just think like, 20 oh. times one is 20. Yeah. Well, so if there's 20, I guess we'll ask, never know, always, will we? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's just like, oh, like the odds just become different. I think it really is, you adjust based on your scale. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that as long as you feel like you're being true to yourself. And I do sort of feel sometimes like it's difficult. Because it's like you go to a party and you say a joke and someone doesn't like it. And you're like, oh, like they don't vibe with my sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And that's fine because Mm -hmm. that's one experience in one person. But when you do that on such a massive scale, it really fucks with you. And you're just like, well, that doesn't mean I'm not that person anymore. It just means I'm not that person on Twitter. 
Right. And it's like, well, who cares? That's like a really small price to pay. I don't need to be that person on Twitter. Or obscure newsletter interviews. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think it's just kind of like being more intelligent and like weighing the pros and cons. And the things that are really important for me to say, I say. Mm-hmm. And the things that aren't that important or maybe aren't rooted in something that I'm proud of, I don't say. Mm. How did you get through that time? Who helped you get through? Well, I'm not going to go into that. But you don't have to name. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, do you want my list yeah. of people? Yeah. Um, it was awful. It was terrible. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me, yeah. for sure. It was really bad. It was really bad. There's like no way to sugarcoat that. And I think about how to answer that question a lot because you don't want people being like, oh, boo-hoo. And it's like, yeah, okay. But it was like the middle of the pandemic. That was a feverish time. Yeah. I was alone. I was single. I was like in my little one-bedroom apartment alone like very alone because no one was seeing each other. It was fucking awful. It was really bad. And I think that that description alone is bad for most people. And I think most people had a really tough time mental health wise, just in that circumstance regardless. But to have the entire world, what feels like the entire world Mm -hmm. wanting you dead and like telling you what a bad person you are and how horrible you are and just like wild stuff. I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. I maintain that my least favorite people on this earth, I still would never wish that to happen to them. I don't think anyone deserves that. And it was bad. Do you think people <laughs> appreciate just what a difficult position that is to be in? I think some people experience? do. I think some people don't. Mm. I think that most people in this day and age, <laughs> in this day and age is such an old person phrase. Well, <laughs> like you're 37, you're an that's true. older millennial. I yeah, I'm an old millennial. Yeah. I think in this day and age, and I've heard this in many interviews from other people who are much more famous than I am, but it's sort of like the mentality that once public at large or even an individual has made up their mind about what they think about you, it's very difficult to change that. And once you've been associated with something, especially something pejorative or negative, it's very tough to shake that and... There were plenty of people that were like, I love you. I'll always love you. I still love you. I think that's great. Some people that were like, I used to love you. Now I hate you. There were people that were like, I used to love you. And now I hate you. But I see that you can be different. And I love you again or something. It was just it really ran the gamut. And I heard from everybody. I heard from all sorts of people. And some things I learned from some things I didn't because they were just mean The interesting part is that my biggest takeaway is don't be an asshole, right? Don't say shitty things about people. Don't say them publicly. Don't say them privately, maybe. Just like be kinder, especially when you don't know a person as, you know, personally. And so the response then for people to be so mean to me back, like even still today, like there's like, you know, occasional tweets and stuff. And I'm just like, didn't you learn anything? The the evil Alison Roman said that thing about the billionaires. Didn't you like learn anything from my experience of just like, don't be an asshole, Mm -hmm. you know? And people can have it. No, there's no way they've like, that. No, <laughs> no, no, no. That was, I mean, it's a very basic, simple lesson. And I think that that's why things happen on a public scale. So we can like learn at large. Does it make you want to retreat though? Does it make you want to get out of the big it public did. spotlight? It did. And now I just do it differently. Mm-hmm. But I feel, again, like I don't feel like I have anything to hide. I'm not like, oh, I'm so nervous to go on this podcast or this TV show or this whatever because I'm afraid I'm just going to say something problematic because I don't, because yeah. I don't feel that way because I don't. It's not in me, you know? And I think that everybody fucks up. Everybody says something stupid. Yeah. Everybody twists their words. Everybody says something flippantly. Everybody's feeling cocky or arrogant or insecure or whatever. And they say something that maybe they're like, oh, that was not good. Yeah. And most people can do that privately. Right. And it used to happen prolifically before social media. And now social media has a way for it, like carry every insignificant word into people's ears. Yeah. I think that what it taught well, hopefully, I think what also some people figured out in that specific circumstance is also just like the general, there's like a, people really delight in that. The like, oh, and this was like also a lesson that I learned of like thinking that somebody is not a person, like speaking about somebody in a way where like, oh, I'm down here and they're up there. So like, they're never going to hear. It's like, well, they do hear and their feelings get hurt or like they get upset or whatever. And like, same thing where I'm like, I'm a, just a person. So when you say something shitty about me, you don't know me. You have no idea. You've never met me. Mm-hmm. But to like make up your mind based on a tiny sound bite is like really wild. So it's funny now, even when I'm with my friends and they're like, oh, like talking about celebrities and they're like, well, I heard so-and-so and did and so-and-so like, and I'm like, oh, I've never met them. I actually couldn't weigh in. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of stopped having opinions about people that I don't know. Mm-hmm. So what do you think of Meghan Markle? 
<laughs> I haven't watched a single moment of her documentary or listened to her podcast, so I don't know. My friend Katie loves her. So okay, great. That's all I know. <laughs> uh, good on Katie. Yeah. So how does it feel to come out the other side of that? I'm not sure if you actually feel like you've come through the other side. It's my assumptions, what I see from the outside. I see you're killing it with a newsletter and I see you're killing <laughs> it with home movies and that you're about to have another big book come out. Mm-hmm. You had a CNN Plus show that got turned into a CNN show. Mm-hmm. What was the feeling for reestablishing that base for yourself after having gone through that difficult emotional experience? I mean, my self-confidence is still really a work in progress for sure. In some ways, you're sort of like, well, the worst has happened. I can do anything. And then on the other hand, I still have this really wretched anxiety about everyone hates me. Like walking into a room, like everyone hates me. Everyone knows who I am and everyone hates me, which is both arrogant and self-deprecating at the same time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's arrogant, but it's... Well, it's like arrogant. Like, oh, everyone knows... Everyone's everyone thinking knows. about me. Exactly. Yeah. Like, no one's... Maybe no one's thinking about you. Yeah. But for a time, everybody Probably was thinking about think me. Probably a few people And yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that like anyone that goes through that is ever really on the other side unless you're a sociopath or something. Like, yeah. it affects you. It really does. It kind of changes your life. What do you think Alison Roman in 10 or 20 years from now, what will be the outlook she has on this experience? I think hopefully it's just like a footnote and you're just like, oh, that happened. Interesting. I think that generally, and I felt this at the time, I was like, this could potentially be like a blessing in disguise as a way to like, because at the time, like the, the train was moving too quickly and I was not really in control. And I think that like, I remember saying this, I was like, something bad's going to happen. I was like, no one can achieve this level of popularity, this level of whatever, especially someone like me, who's pretty unfiltered generally. And like, not say something at some point, you know, and I did. And and you really were the golden girl before this moment. Yeah. Like some people probably resented you because you had such success. Yeah. But you were basically unblemished. And yeah. this was a moment where everyone started lining up to yeah. take some punches. Yeah. I think it's like kind of fun for people when you're like, oh, someone fucked up. And I've really fucked up. And I think that that was sort of, and now I'm trying to like shed the shame of that and just normalize fucking up or normalize yeah, I'm going to have a really long career. And like that is probably not going to be the last time I say something stupid. Hopefully it doesn't happen on that scale again. But like it just is part of being a person. Like think about any individual in your everyday life. Think about how many times you aren't your best self in that day or that week or that month. Or you say something stupid or you have an argument with someone or you behave, you're like shitty to someone because something bad happened to you right before that. And you're like, oh, I shouldn't have been so mean to the cashier or something. I don't know. You're just like, oh, that was like, I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. But like, imagine that defining you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And so I think that for me, it only defines me if like, I keep talking about it or if I'm like, yeah, and then that happened and it was awful. It's like, yeah, it was awful. Well, I moved on, yeah. you know, and like nobody died. I mean, well, don't put that in because people be, whatever, oh, COVID. Yeah. see, this is, the, just... <laughs> this is the fear. No one died. No one died as a result of your comments to exactly. that obscure newsletter. Exactly, exactly. Um, and people should realize that. Yes. And that's sort of what I meant. And I do, I'm not dumb and and I understand like the implications and why what happened happened and I've been through it and I understand it's more just like, could have been like, you know, whatever. I'm talking about it too much. Anyway, I think. It's it's definitely going to be just for your comfort as the wise four years older person. Mm. It's definitely going to be a footnote. It will be a small part of your Wikipedia page, but your career. And everyone's going to remember this time in 2020. Um, there was a time, right? Like, that's one of the worst years in history for people of our age. You oh, know, yeah. Like, people say 2020 and people are like, Ugh. Yeah, like, fuck. I'm like, you have no People idea. are going to be, oh, it's 2020. <laughs> Forget about that. You've done so much more important stuff than that. That's a, like a moment of mania in society. And I think people will think about it far less than you think about it. Yeah. There's certain people that don't ever want to let you forget something. Fuck them. And I'm, yeah, and I'm kind of like, oh, I'm so sorry for you that that's the most, like, that's the, the, ones mo- the most important part of your life. Yeah. But they're not that plentiful. And... I they'll think all fight, you can do fade is just out. move on. Yeah. Or maybe it's like the people who are too on social media and they just get crazier and crazier because it's a crazy making machine. I think for me, I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to keep being myself and living my life. And eventually you sort of see the trend becomes like, oh, that was an anomaly. Like, that's not who this person is. Like, this yeah. was like a weird moment. It's one thing if like something like that happens and then it snowballs and you're like, oh, they're like off yeah, the yeah. deep end and like... Something bad is definitely happened. an ex-murderer. Just or just like yeah, you're like, oh, this is like is a decided out. change in their person, and like now they're uh, something else that I thought they weren't. Oh uh, yeah. But to be like, it's like a flat line with like a spike and something, and another flat line for infinity, rather than yeah. 
if you were here in person, you'd see I'm drawing. There's a lot of it, my extremely hand. complicated uh, yeah. diagramming going on with the hands, <laughs> but it makes it all make sense. Yeah. CNN Plus, that must have been a bit of a roller coaster. Yeah. Got the show. <laughs> There's coaster. this big launch going to happen. Main, it remains a roller coaster. Oh yeah, tell me yeah. about that. Um, you, it was great. I mean, can you I tell sold me all the show? secrets of CNN along the no, way? No, I can't do that. But oh. I sold a show to CNN Plus, and then CNN Plus came and went, but not before they plastered my face all over the billboards. And I got the news that they were shutting it down when I was in L.A. And I remember crying all morning. I was so upset. Uh, had you already just, made the show by then? I had, we were in the middle of filming. Uh. But I was like, I did it. I'm, I can do something again. And then they shut it down. I was like, you're fucking kidding me. And yeah. I was in L.A. And I was like in the car by myself. I was driving and I was crying. And I look up and there's like my billboard. Oh, God. <laughs> this is, a, I was like, this a, is a bad scene yeah. from a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Yeah. Well, the past few years have been a film. But I was so mortified and also just like embarrassed me. Like, I hope nobody sees me. Because in your mind, like, oh, everyone's talking about it. Well, like, no, not everybody was talking about it. Very few people were. And then CNN decided to pick it up. I was like, wow, what a mitzvah. This is like a real blessing in disguise and sort of reminded me you know, everything happens for a reason. Like, if this hadn't happened, then this wouldn't have happened. And if this hadn't, and it seems bad at the time, but a better thing's on the other side. So we filmed two full seasons of the show. It's really exciting. And then they say, okay, we just finished the last episode of season two. And they're like, okay, so big news. They're shutting down all original programming for CNN. And I was like, what? Oh, shit. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? I was on the phone with my manager and we were like laughing. We were just like, it's too absurd. It's so absurd. Like at every, everything. I was like, is the universe trying to tell me something? Like yeah. what's happening? And when you work in Hollywood, when you're an actor or film writer, screenwriter, director, whatever, this happens all the time. Yeah. Things just get picked up. They get put down. They get canceled. They get reinstated. They get moved around. They get shelved. They get whatever. Like it just yeah. is a constant barrage of executive decision making that impacts you and your project and your art. And you pick it up and you figure something else out. And so... That's what we're in the process of doing. So I'm trying to remember that all the shitty things that have happened have ultimately led me to something great, yep. even if I couldn't see it at the time. So I'm choosing that. But also what it taught me was, again, of all the things that have fallen apart in my life in terms of my platforms, I realized that the only thing that I can really control are the things that I have myself, that I can create myself. So start a Substack, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> this really is reading like a fucking Substack ad. Yeah. But it's true. Like I, you know, it's and, like, mm -hmm. oh, you have a column, you don't have a column. You have a show, you don't have a show. It's like, okay, well, I have a YouTube channel and I have a newsletter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that feels really good. It feels really good to continue to make the things that I want to make and not be beholden to people making decisions for me over like what's good or what people want to watch. And even if that means fewer eyeballs, and I have faith that this show will find a home because we have two seasons of it. They're very good. Yeah. Very proud of it. It was so exciting to make. I spent all of last year making it. That's what I was doing. I was taking, I prioritized it. I took time off doing everything else to like make this show. And I was like, people miss me on the newsletter, but once they see this show, they'll see why I was gone for so long. And then I was like, oh, we, there's no show. <laughs> so it's been like, it's kind of like, okay, well, what next? There's been so many ups and downs and so many things happening, not happening. And I used to like really let it devastate me. And now I'm just like, okay, like, let's move on. Let's just mm -hmm. pick it up and keep going. The things are good. The content's good. I know what I'm doing. I have really wonderful people behind me and let's figure it out. Yeah. Another way of looking at it is uh, of all these experiences is that it's, that's kind of how wisdom is the one. Like yeah. you're building up these things that make you a more interesting and complicated person and give you a, a different view of life. Yeah. I completely agree. I think that like, to go back to our original joke of like, why am I like this? But I think growing up, if you have difficulty in your life or if you have uncomfortable conversations and relationships and things aren't easy, it sort of instills this like very intense resilience in you. And I, for better or for worse, am very resilient. And I sort of resent the fact that I am because that means that I've had to be, but I'm also grateful for it. Those people are more interesting. Yeah, yeah. 20 years from now, what's good for you? Where do you want to be? I want to be, where do I want to be? I don't know. It depends like on climate. Maybe Maine. <laughs> <laughs> I want to have some kids around and I want to like help them with the fun homework and then like pawn off the uncomfortable homework to like a tutor or something. That, I don't, I don't do think math. it's fun homework. I would love to like encourage my kids to be interested in writing. My mom did a really good job of making sure that I read a lot and like encouraged me to do journaling and diarying. And I think that without that, I don't know that I would have such an interest or desire to do that as an adult. 
Shockingly, no one in my family cared about math. Neither do I. Not really a Not science one. person. Computers I, do math these days. Yeah, I want to build like dioramas with my kids. I want to do like arts and crafts. I want to like make things, science projects. Do people still do that? Well, I've got kids and they are doing the volcano thing where you put yeah. vinegar into oh, see, the baking that's powder. Great. Yeah. How old timey. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I only ever saw that on American TV shows when I was growing up and they had science fairs depicted in these school settings and American TV shows and they always did the volcano thing so it's nice to come over here and actually like get a piece of that action thanks Alison for coming on the show it's been a pleasure to talk to you and thanks for the contributions to the world you've made thanks to your great books and for your great newsletter and your great YouTube show thanks for making my wife's life happier (laughs) of course Um, and hope to talk to you again one day yeah absolutely thank you for having me cheers you can find Alison Roman on Substack at a newsletter com. Thanks and see you next time. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D.substack.com.